In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints of God, the last few weeks we've been hearing about the gifts that Jesus leaves behind. We had this three-week sermon series on the joy of the resurrection, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and the love of the Father. These are the things that Jesus leaves behind for His church in the resurrection. We could, if we wanted to, extend it one more week and talk about it today. For we have in the Gospel lesson from John 15 and 16, the words right before the words we've been studying. But the thing that Jesus leaves behind for us today is quite different than any of the other things that we've been studying. Jesus, in fact promises to leave behind for us, his church, the hatred of the world. The hatred of the world. And listen to how Jesus promises this to us. This is verse 2 of chapter 16 of John's Gospel. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering a service to God. These words are stunning. The the text is jarring. No matter how many times I I preach on this text or I've read on it, every time it still strikes you right in the face. Jesus is saying that the world will hate the church, will hate Christians so much that, that they will murder the Christians, but then it goes even further. For this is not just a normal, cold blooded murder, it's one thing to murder someone. It's another thing altogether to think that that murder is good. And it is another thing completely altogether to think that that murder is a service to God. That killing a Christian is a religious act. But that's exactly what Jesus says. It's exactly what Jesus says. The the unbelieving world will think of murdering Christians. It's a divine service. It's like you wake up in the morning on Sunday and and, and get ready and, and come to church. So the unbelieving world will wake up in the morning and take up their sword or their gun or whatever it is and go to church, that is, go to kill the Christian. This is amazing. How could it be that the mind of a person could be so deceived that killing a Christian would be understood as the highest of all good works? Hmm? This is a difficult question, especially for us Christians in America to answer. None of our families have, no one in our families have ever been murdered because of their faith. We, we, the church in the United States, and our congregation too, we have not learned what it means to shed our blood for the faith. We haven't learned this yet anyways. The animosity of the demons towards the church in the United States takes a different form than bloodshed. We don't know if it will be that way always. We don't know if, uh, if we will be safe from crimes because we claim to be Christians. We don't know. But we do know that our brothers and our sisters in faith, in the faith throughout the world, are being harassed and thrown into jail and killed for their faith. It is perhaps easy for us to forget here, in our comfort, that the, that the 20th century was the bloodiest century in the history of the church. That more people were martyred in the 20th century 
than in all the other centuries of the church combined. In China, in North Africa, in the Middle East, in the old Soviet Union, being a Christian was dangerous. It was putting your life on the line when you confessed to be a Christian. It could be, it could be, that things will change in our own country and that the devil will have his way and will put Christians on the sharp end of the sword. And, and when that happens, if it happens, when that happens, we'll be able to ask our murderers how it is that they think they're offering a service to God, how they think that killing us is a God-pleasing act of worship. Then we can ask them, and then we'll know. But until then, I suspect that, that we won't know for sure how it is that this, that this delusion could take hold of a person's mind, how the murder of a Christian could be understood as religious service, but I'm going to hazard a guess. What we Christians say about God is religiously offensive. What we Christians say about God is religiously offensive. I think I've told you the story about my visit with Mohammed. I don't know if I've told you this from the pulpit, so maybe this is good. He, the president or the ex-president of the Colorado Muslim Society, we were sitting there, this was a few months back, uh, we were sitting there planning the symposium on Islam and working out some of the details, and then we were talking about the, the similarities and the differences between Christianity and Islam. Uh, Mohammed was interested in talking about the similarities. In fact, as far as he was concerned, and as far as he was talking, they were the same teaching. I wanted to talk about the differences, and he asked me, well, what's the difference? And here's my answer to him. In Islam, I said, and tell me if I'm wrong, Muhammad, in Islam, everything in the entire creation exists to serve Allah, right? Right, he said. Look, Muhammad, I told him, the Bible tells us something different about Jesus. It tells us that Jesus was God who wrapped himself in a towel and washed his disciples' feet. Jesus said the Son of Man doesn't come to, to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, after he had given out the Lord's Supper, said to his disciples, who's greater, the one that sits at the table or the one that serves? Isn't it the one that sits at the table? And yet I'm among you as the one who serves. Mohammed, I said, everything in the Bible teaches that God comes down to creation not to be served by us, but to serve us, to bleed and to die for us. And he said, yes, Brian, that's different. <laughs> that difference, that God comes to serve us, that is religiously offensive. No decent self-respecting God would dress in servant's clothes and wash people's feet. In Islam, one more thing about Islam, and then we'll take a poke at a few other world religions. At Islam, they confessed that Jesus was a great prophet, but that he didn't die on the cross because, and this is the important point, it is below the dignity of a prophet 
to die the shameful death on the cross. Hanging on the cross is below, if this is below the dignity of a prophet, imagine how offensive it is to say that it's no mere prophet on the cross, but God Himself. The cross is religiously offensive. A couple of centuries ago, there was a German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche. He caused this huge offense when he wrote that God is dead. Everyone was up in arms over it. But this statement has been what the church has been saying for centuries. At least that God was dead for three days, that God died and bled and was laid in the tomb. This is religiously offensive, and we see it in the life of Jesus. Remember, it was Jesus' theology that he was crucified for. The Jewish accusers had to make the trial of Jesus a political one when they brought him before Pilate, but they had already judged him guilty of blasphemy, of false teaching, because he claimed to be God in the flesh, the very Son of God. And this is religiously offensive. According to all of our natural religious sensibilities, God is not supposed to be in our flesh and blood. God is certainly not supposed to die. He's not supposed to hang naked in shame and suffering on the cross. God is not supposed to serve us and give His life for us. These are all religiously offensive claims, and yet they are the very foundation of our faith. They are what we Christians say about God. They are the cornerstones of our creed and our belief. What we believe about God and what we confess about Him is radical. It turns turns everything upside down. It goes against all natural and conventional wisdom to such a degree that our faith seems to be irreligious and dangerous. And so to get rid of these claims and the people who make them is to help God out, to serve Him. This is my best guess as to how it is that when a Christian is murdered, that the murderer thinks that he does God a service. Christianity is religiously offensive. Our faith does not fit the natural religious sensibilities of man. But praise be to God that he is not interested in our sensibilities. He is interested in our salvation. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit know just what it takes to have you as as their friend, their child, as their Christian. So your Jesus comes in to your flesh into your sin, into your death, into your shame and your suffering and your cross and your grave to save you. Oh, He despised the shame. 
but he endured it for your sake. This, dear saints, is not what we expect of God. It's not. It's certainly not what we deserve from God. But praise be to God, it's what we get. He saves us. And if the world doesn't like it, if the world hates Jesus and you because you're clinging with all your might to the God who died on the cross to save you, if the world decides that it would be better off without you and throws you in jail or, or kills you rather than ha- to have you go around talking about how God is in your flesh and in your place, then if the world decides this, you are blessed. For this, our God will net, let nothing stand between you and Him. Not your sin, not your weakness, not your shame, and not your death. He will not let anything separate you from His love. And look, to make sure that you have this promise, this confidence, the Lord Jesus does something else totally unexpected. He puts His very body and His blood here for you to eat and drink with this promise again that you are forgiven. So the ascended Lord gives us this sure confidence and this hope that even though the world hates us, He loves us and His love knows no end and no limit. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.